Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Okay, as, I, as Seth said, uh, this is coming back for me. I'm from Norfolk. I'm a proud 1969 graduate of Great Bridge High School. Anybody here from Great Bridge? Nobody. So, right, somebody from Great Bridge. All right. Um, so this is coming back. My father played football in the late 1930s for the predecessor of ODU, uh, the Norfolk Division of William & Mary. And my brother has found out that my grandfather spent 60 days in the Norfolk County Jail in the early 1920s for selling bootleg whiskey. So that's uh, doing various things in the neighborhood. Uh, so this topic I'm talking about tonight is purgatory. Um, the original title, we're going to assess the biblical issues. And I'll just, how I think, in, at least in Catholic teaching, is understood to be good news for us. Uh, at times in Christian history, bootleg, uh, uh, purgatory has been a quite central topic. Got bootlegging on the mind. Um, uh, but often it's depicted in all kinds of odd ways. What I want to do is, to a certain degree tonight, give an apologia for the, the, at least the concept of purgatory and talk a bit about how it developed. I'm going to try and do three things. First, I want to talk about how the doctrine of purgatory developed historically. I want to second, give a description of simply what is Catholic teaching about purgatory. It may actually be a bit less than you think. And third, say something about contemporary discussions of the meaning of purgatory as an aspect of our conformity to Christ, the completion of our unity with Christ beyond death in the final end. First, let me say something about the development of the concept of purgatory. Now, one needs to be clear. Obviously, the concept of purgatory cannot be found explicitly in Scripture. I will argue that it is implicitly present in what one might call the apostolic deposit, the, what, the faith once and for all given to the saints, as it says in the book of Jude. But there we get into issues about what is the apostolic deposit and the question about the development of doctrine, about ideas that are implicit in the early church and then become explicit as time comes on. You don't have a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament, but I would argue there's always no way, if we think about it long enough, to make sense of what the New Testament says about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father without coming up with something like a doctrine of the Trinity, but it took an amount of time thinking things through, arguing about it to get to that point. Where does the idea of purgatory come from if it's not at least sitting on the surface? of the New Testament. We today know far more than we did, say, 50 or 100 years ago about that history. Jacques Legoff, L-E-G-O-F-F, has written a book that will tell you more than you ever wanted to know about the history of the doctrine of purgatory through about the 1100. We now can say that the doctrine of purgatory is rooted in Jewish practice in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it develops in the Western Church, particularly in the teachings of St. Augustine in the 4th century, and then St. Gregory the Great, Pope, around 600, both of them quite influential. The actual noun purgatory in Latin, purgatorium, 
does not appear until the early 8th century. That's the first time you can find the word purgatory being used. In the writings of someone called the Venerable Bede, B-E-D-E, who lived in northeastern England, that is really the edge of the world. But remember, after you have the barbarian invasions, fall of the Roman Empire, it's particularly missionaries from England and Ireland who convert places like Germany. So that St. Boniface, often you see St. Boniface Church in this country, it's a German Catholic church. Boniface is English. Or even if you go to Würzburg, southern Germany, a wonderful place, uh, the Catholic cathedral is St. Killian's because it was an Irish missionary who died there. So the idea really gets worked out by, by the Venerable Bede. He's the first one to use the word purgatory. It spreads out through English and Irish missionaries. Only in the 11th century does the actual word purgatory seem to come into fairly widespread use. Why does it develop? I would say purgatory is rooted in a practice, a conviction, and a problem. The practice is prayer for the dead. Now, there is no indisputable reference to prayer for the dead in the New Testament. I, th I think if you read the first chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul talks about praying for Onesiphorus. I think it makes the most sense as if Onesiphorus is dead. The way he talks about it is somebody who has done something for the past and is sort of beyond, but it doesn't have to be read that way, I'll grant. You, you can read it a variety of ways. Paul does speak in 1 Corinthians about baptism for the dead. So who knows without, no, we, have, we can't know what that means in any, any sharp sense. He doesn't approve it, but he doesn't condemn it either. So there's at least some sign about Christians doing something for the dead. It is the case, um, we know, there's a, we've got prayer for the dead, we know is occurring in, as I say, intertestamental Judaism. Now we're going to look later on in a bit at 2 Maccabees, a book not in Protestant Bibles, but it is in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. It was in all Christian Bibles until the Reformation, in which you do have a passage about some Jewish soldiers who get killed. They're fighting for the right side, but they get killed in battle, and one finds afterwards they're wearing little pagan amulets under their armor. They're hedging their bets. You know, we're all for the God of Israel, but we'll wear a little pagan, we'll little pagan thing under our armor just in case. And then they make sacrifices for these people who have died so they may receive mercy on the last day. And we're said that's a good thing. Whether or not Maccabees is canon, at least we have historical evidence. People were, in fact, praying, making sacrifices for the dead in the pre-New Testament period. We know that by around 200, we have catacomb inscriptions in Rome about prayers being offered for the dead. That is around 200. Tertullian, a North African theologian, talks about offering the mass for the dead. Tertullian is a very hard-nosed man. He doesn't talk about it as, a, as an innovation. He talks about it as something that's just commonly done. So whereas we don't have explicit evidence of praying for the dead in the New Testament, we know Jews were praying for the dead before the New Testament. Christians were praying for the dead commonly by 200. It's a deduction, I'll grant, but it seemed to me to make the most sense Christians are always praying for the dead. 
uh, all along, even though it wasn't particularly um, noticed, uh, particularly written down. I so, and I think this expresses an essential point that the early church did not see death as an enormous divide. Just as we pray for each other in this life, one prays for the dead also, particularly in the early church, where there was less concern about judgment at death than there was about judgment on the last day, when the world comes to an end. And we face that, and those who have already died face that too. So prayers for the dead was made a different kind of sense when Christianity was much more oriented toward the last day than life, say, immediately following death. So that's the practice. The conviction was that the final kingdom, the total rule of God in Christ that comes at the end of time, heaven, will be a realm of perfection, the completion of all things in their true form. Every tear will be wiped away. No more tears will be shed. The book of Revelation says, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and nothing unclean shall enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The kingdom of God will not harbor petty envy, greed, violence, lust, or any other evil that disrupt the harmony of the perfect community in Christ, the perfect community of perfect charity. This is a, a universal commitment of all strands of Christianity, to my knowledge. So that's a conviction. There will be a perfect kingdom at the end, a perfect harmony. But then there's a problem. The problem is what we might call the middling Christian, who is not guilty of abomination or falsehood, but doesn't seem quite ready for prime time either. Who cannot be said to be without envy, a bit of greed now and then, perhaps without some elements of pride. Often in a lecture, they call him Uncle Fred. Um, you know, comes around, I mean, a little too much to drink sometimes or something, he can be angry too much. But he's a good person, essentially. He has faith. He, he, he does the best he can. What about that kind of middling Christian? This becomes different after the conversion of Constantine in 312. Prior to that, you had intermittent, but sometimes quite vehement, Christian persecution. The, the, the nominal Christian, the person who's just going along, so to speak, who believes it, but you know, don't let it, don't let it, don't become too gung-ho about all this stuff. That person might fall away in a situation of persecution. But when the emperor has taken up the faith, when it might help your career, to become a Christian. Then you have a problem of the sort of half Christian, the, the moderate Christian, the middling Christian. Uh, what do you do about, what is the fate of the middling Christian who doesn't appear quite ready at death for that perfect kingdom in which there'll be no envy or greed? They may need a bit of help. So St. Augustine in the City of God, book 24, 21, chapter 24, is this on the handout? Let me see, I think this isn't there, no. Chap Augustine says this. He's writing about 320. There are, of course, certain souls for whom the prayer, either of the church or of some devout individuals, is heard. These are the souls of those reborn in Christ, 
whose lives in the body are not so evil that they are reckoned unworthy of mercy, but were not so good as to be found not needing such mercy. And so even after the resurrection of the dead, there will be some who, after enduring the pains suffered by the spirits of the dead, will be granted mercy and so not cast into everlasting fire. Now note two notions in this quotation of St. Augustine. First, those not ready for the kingdom must undergo some sort of painful transformation, which Augustine describes as punishment, and they can be aided in this process by the prayers of the church. I think there you have the two essential contents of a, of a doctrine of purgatory, but without it being named. Note, he does insist on the rigor of the kingdom of God. We must all be transformed, be, be, be cleansed of envy, greed, hate, whatever, if we are going to enter into that final kingdom. Now note here, Augustine it talks about prayer helping you on the last judgment. Still not quite exactly what becomes the doctrine of purgatory. By the time of Gregory the Great, Gregory the Great is Pope around the year 600. Very entertaining book of his is called The Dialogues. Uh, he said, people are saying there are no miracles anymore. Uh, basically, it's a collection of miracle stories. And book four of The Dialogues has a number of, of stories about death, uh, people who have died. And you get stories, one particularly striking story of a priest who goes to a bath. Remember, you have these communal baths. And the, he appears a ghost, so to speak, um, who says, I'm, I'm suffering punishments because of I was a Christian, but I committed sins. Would you say a mass for me? Would you say a mass every day? The priest does this and comes back, and the priest, the, this person appears to him and says, I've been released from my punishment. You, these stories are rather influential. Um, what you have there is something more like what became later, the notion of the prayers releasing people or helping them in dealing with their sufferings, um, that, were, that they were suffering after death. There you, you then go, that develops again, the venerable bead, about 800, um, which you get the notion of aid helping in the transformation to being ready for the kingdom. Now I should note, the development of the doctrine of purgatory historically went with the development of penance. We're forgiven for our sins, but we also need to regret our sins. Forgiveness is not the end of the story. There is the damage we have done to ourselves and to others as a function of our sin. We have become deformed. And we have to be reformed so that we can be conformed to Christ. That's a process of even after forgiveness. Now, the language here is offering temporal punishments. But one can think about here, and this, we can discuss that a bit, whether punishments here is quite the right language. But you can think about the effects of a sin. And then what follows forgiveness. Now, this is, I'm not confessing this is not my sin, okay? But let's say I commit adultery. And my wife forgives me. Do I think, oh, she's forgiven me, it's all okay now, completely back to normal. Is that the way it's going to work? No. There's work to be done. Damage has been done. 
I have to face up to the fact of what I've done, how I've hurt her, how I've perhaps misshapen myself if I've done this regularly. There is a penitential process, so to speak, that must be done to reform myself. As penitential practice developed in the church, particularly now between, say, 500 and 1200, uh, this often went closely with purgatory. So you get the notion penance and purgatory are closely connected. Penance is, bur- <coughs> excuse me. penance is purgatory in this life. Purgatory is penance beyond death. It's that dealing with myself, what I've become, what I've done to others, the temporal aspect that remains, even if eternal punishment has been lifted, there's still that, that sanctification, that process of change, which may involve, involve pain that must go on. So they tended to go together. The, the notion, the developing notions of penance and the developing notions of purgatory. I would note, in the process also, there has been what Jacques Le Goff calls the infernalization of purgatory. There was a tendency to think of purgatory as hell with a time limit. Uh, it, was, it was often hell-like punishments. Some of you have read Dante. Um, granted, in Dante, the punishments in purgatory are quite as bad as hell, but they're still pretty, pretty bad. Um, this often had to do, in fact, with near-death experiences. There's a famous vision of Dreithel that's in Bede's history, Ecclesiastical History of England of a guy who had allegedly died. Two hours later, he suddenly wakes up after they think he's dead. He tells a story about a tour of hell he had had, at which the highest level of hell turns out to be purgatory. People are only there temporarily. So you had these medieval near-death experiences, which often uh, were of hell. It's an interesting question. Near-death experiences today are almost never, at least reported, about hell, whereas medieval ones often were about hell. It's just interesting how whatever I know some speculate if you had a near-death experience and you found it, you know, and I saw I'm a terrible jerk who's going to go to hell, you may not tell everybody about it. Um, that may be part of it at any rate. Now, in this, I've not said anything about biblical texts. In this process, certain biblical texts were important. I've mentioned 2 Maccabees 12, 39 through 45, which was heavily debated in the Reformation in which you've got these Jewish soldiers who have worn pagan amulets and sacrifices have offered for them. Actually, as far as I can tell in reading the literature, primary literature, the Second Maccabees text did not play a great role in the development of purgatory. Far more important were two other passages, which I've given you on the handout. One is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of, this is Paul, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon that foundation survives, 
he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, in context, at least at the beginning of that passage, the focus is on missionary work. Paul has laid the foundation of, the, of this Christian community. Somebody else has come and worked on the top of it, so to speak, built on the foundation and further work. A question is, as you read the passage, does Paul drift, so to speak, into a more general kind of consideration of all of us? The foundation is Christ, but we build on the foundation with wood, hay, straw, stubble, precious stones, gold, blah, blah, blah. And it will become revealed on the last day what that is done by fire. Generally, fire tends to do three things in the New Testament. It punishes, it tests, and it purifies. Now, it's often interesting the way these three, way the images of fire, punishment, purification, and testing flow together, and they do here to a degree. But you can see the way in which this text once you've got praying for the dead and sort of stuff on your mind, you see the way the text, I think, does move toward notions of this sort of event beyond death and judgment in which there will be a burning fire. Remember this text when I come to uh, Joseph Rotzinger, Pope Benedict, later. Actually, the text that I find referred to, seen referred to the most in the early church period is one that may not strike you. Matthew 12, 32. The context here is about the sin against the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven. This is now Jesus speaking. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Why would Jesus say he will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come? Unless some sins are going to be forgiven in the age to come. How are they forgiven? In purgatory. So the notion went. This was often taken actually as a kind of text used more than in connection with the 1 Corinthians 3 passage and then to some degree the 2 Maccabees passage. Now I'll be the first to admit uh, if you're looking for a biblical foundation, just sort of in the abstract, then this is perhaps rather thin. Um, here we do come to a crucial question about authority. I, I referred to the apostolic deposit. Book of Jude refers to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Usual teaching that the age of revolution ends, at, of, of revelation, ends with the apostles. Now, at least in Catholic teaching up through the Reformation and still today, that deposit is present in the scriptures and in apostolic tradition, particularly traditions which seems to be universal and go back as far as we can find in the history of the church. Take, for example, the question of should you baptize infants? I'm convinced if all you have is the New Testament, it's hard to settle that question one way or the other. When it says this person in the book of Acts, this person converted and he and his were baptized. That's the way the Greek reads sometimes, or he and his household were baptized. Was that the children? Duh, I don't know. Um, I think it's very hard to decide. The tendency has been, for, for Catholics, when there's an unbroken tradition, 
then that tradition is part of what you use to interpret the scriptures. It's the unit, the unity of the apostolic church as the, as the, as the, which has the deposit of the faith, which is normative here. And so it's these scripture passages in the context of particularly what seems to be an unbroken tradition of the church, all uh, on particularly prayer for the dead and belief that prayer for the dead does something. The prayers of a good man availeth much, book of James says, and that works also for the dead. That's, I think, the context that that is an issue between the Reformation and the Catholic Church uh, about whether, so to speak, it's sola scriptura or sola scriptura in the context of the wider tradition of the church, the apostolic tradition, which forms normative authority. That's the first, how it developed a bit, particularly out of the practice of prayer for the dead, certain biblical passages, um, and the conviction that many of us perhaps are not going to be quite ready for heaven when we die, and something has to change us, the purgation. First section of lecture. Second section, something about official church doctrine. As far as I can tell, then the historians, the development of, of the doctrine of purgatory, prayers for the dead, was without controversy. There is only one ancient theologian who argued that one should not pray for the dead. His name was Arius of Sebaste. This is not the Arius you may know if you know something about the Nicaea controversy. This is a different guy. It's A-E-R-I-U-S. Arius of Sebaste, northern Turkey, who had a number of odd ideas. He thought celebrating Easter was a Jewish superstition, and his followers would refuse to celebrate Easter with the rest of the church. Um, and he denied, he thought you should not pray for the dead. Uh, he, was, he had a number of odd ideas and was generally considered a kind of heretic. Um, he's the only one one can find that attacked the practice of prayers for the dead in the first thousand years of the church. This was a pro, mostly an unbroken development. And what happens when you have an unbroken development, nobody argues about? You never get a doctrine made. Church doctrines come when somebody's argued about something. And you have to say, well, you know, that works, but this over here just doesn't. You can say, you have to say, the Logos incarnate in Jesus is God. You can't say, well, he's about 95% God. That doesn't work. You've got to say this. And because there were virulent arguments on the subject. Because there was no debate on prayer for the dead. And the doctrine of purgatory developed rather slowly with very little argument, there was never an official sort of doctrine that a council of the church decided. It was only in encounters with the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox in the 13th century, who prayed for the dead, but had never developed anything like a doctrine of purgatory, that you started having discussions. And then in the Reformation, where the issue to a significant degree had to do with the way the doctrine of purgatory was embedded in a set of practices, uh, indulgence campaigns, and other things um, which, which were related to purgatory. Uh, Luther said, I'd be ready to discuss purgatory in the abstract once you quit having indulgence fairs, uh, he would argue. So it was a rather complicated issue. What is the teaching? I have given you on the handout the entirety, every word, of official Catholic teaching on purgatory, it in fact is relatively thin. 
In the Council of Florence in 1439, there was an attempt to reconcile Rome and Constantinople, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, which had been split since uh, the 11th century. This is what they said. If truly penitent people die in the love of God, before they have made satisfaction for acts and omissions by worthy fruits of repentance, their souls are cleansed after death by cleansing pains. And the suffrages, that is prayers, of the living faithful avail them in giving relief for such pains, that is, sacrifices of masses, prayers, almsgiving, and other acts of devotion, which have been customarily performed by some of the faithful for others, of the faithful in accordance with the church's ordinances. The ordinance, the Catholics and the Orthodox would affirm this together, and that was sufficient. Note, the word purgatory does not appear. It's simply the general notion there may be penance to do after death and prayers for them help. That's really about all that's said. Note there's no word about fire. For reasons we can discuss in the question, they, they avoided the word fire, particularly this upset the Orthodox for very specific reasons. That was the agreement in 1439. Now, it turned out the, um, the Orthodox ended up rejecting this agreement on a whole bunch of other grounds, not so much purgatory. But there you have it. Now, at the Council of Trent, 15, 1545 to 1563, was the Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation. You'll note I said it ended in 1563, and the decree on purgatory is from 1563. This is the proverbial, you have a meeting, you have a long agenda, everybody has plane reservations, their kids are starting school, they need to get home to take care of it, and so you rush stuff at the end. Purgatory was one of those things at the end that got rushed. We're going to say the basic and leave it at that. This is the entirety of the decree on, on purgatory, whereas the Catholic Church, instructed by the Holy Ghost, has from the sacred writings and ancient traditions of the Fathers taught in sacred councils and very recently in this synod that there is a purgatory, that the souls there detained are helped by the suffrages of the faithful, but principally by the acceptable sacrifice of the altar, the Holy Synod enjoins on bishops that they diligently endeavor that the sound doctrine concerning purgatory be taught, blah, 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 blah. That's it. Note the doctrine is just, there is a purgatory. It's not defined. It's not described. It just says there's a purgatory, and people there can be helped. That's all it says. Uh, again, they're careful here. They want to sort of say the Protestants are wrong and utterly rejecting it, but they also are, are interested in reconciliation with the Orthodox, who affirm prayers for the dead, but are worried about the sheer detail of Western theologies of purgatory. The other reference quickly, earlier in 1547, in the decree on justification, the canons were of, of Catholic councils were the, sort of the legal enactments, and they all take this form. If anyone says, blah, 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 anathema sit, let him be condemned. Sounds harsh, but it's straight New Testament. Paul says, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be condemned. So this is the Council of Trent on justification. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged, either in this world or in the purgatory, before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. That really is, those three passages, the entirety of binding Roman Catholic teaching on purgatory.
it is in fact relatively thin. It's not particularly detailed. We're not getting my notes, notes confused here a bit. Catholic piety tended to fill out these, this bare bones of teaching with a variety of kinds of practices and statements. In the process of the late Middle Ages, there was a kind of intensification of fear of purgatory. Uh, one of the things that I greatly admire my academic colleagues who are historians is for their sheer ability to read endlessly boring things. Um, for example, late medieval wills, just going through them and cataloging them. For some reason, in the period following 1400, in Northern Europe, this is more common the further north you go. Sort of like in Europe, the further north you go, the, the more you get for breakfast. Uh, if you want a great breakfast, go to Finland. Enormous breakfasts. Um, the further north you went, people started in the, after 1400, more and more leaving money in their wills to have masses said for their souls in purgatory. Henry VII of England, who dies in 1509, leaves money for 5,000 masses to be said. So you end up with what are called chantry priests, whose only job was to say masses for people who left money to have masses said for them. Uh, it's an odd question. How, why does this happen over a wide span, this sudden shift in sort of attitudes where purgatory became feared more and more? Uh, and it's this, it, the system is what bothered the reformers. However, one should not exaggerate how deep the Protestant Catholic difference is. For Protestant theology also, some sort of transformation has to occur for the vast majority of the faithful between death and something less than a situation of perfection and full conformity to Christ and existence in the kingdom of God beyond all imperfection. Purgation of some sort has to occur for most of us. The standard Protestant solution to that problem is that death, or sometimes death and resurrection, would do the job of purgation. After Paul, in Romans 7, bemoans the fact that he does not do the good he intends, and too often does the evil he does not intend, he asks, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, Luther answered, death is what delivers you from this body of death. That's what does it. Uh, and when you're delivered from in death, or death and resurrection, this purification occurs. But note, if the needed transformation is accomplished simply by death, then the self is purely passive in its transformation. Transformation is, in a certain sense, impersonal. It does not engage the person as an acting, responsible agent. The Catholic intuition, I would say, about purgatory is that the transformation of the self beyond death must continue to be something like penitence, the self's engagement with its own deficiencies in thought and deed, and the self's transformation in coming to terms with itself in the light of Christ with the reality of forgiveness as moved by grace. As Augustine said, St. Augustine, God creates us without us, but he does not redeem us without us. We are engaged 
in, our, in what God is working in us by grace. God respects the nature he has created. He has created us responsible, accountable beings, deals with us this, that way in this life, and will deal with us that way beyond this life. So the transformation that must occur before entry into the kingdom of God is not something that occurs to us without our involvement, but it's something that rather involves us personally. It'll be facing up to who you are and what you've done in a full sense. That is simply what one means by purgatory, I would say, in a full sense. It is that facing up to who you are and what you've done, and that means a certain degree, perhaps, of extension, one thing after another. When you think about yourself, um, there may be aspects of yourself that hide other aspects of yourself from you. Um, you may need to think about one thing and repent of that in certain ways before you can get at other things you need to repent of. It may be one thing after another. And if you have one thing after another, you have something like time. Now, it's never been taught that purgatory is time like so many years or something. But it may be one thing after another, not instantaneous. Um, we can talk a bit about, about that during, during the question and answer. Now, I would note that over the last 30 years or so, a small number of Protestant voices have taken up a similar position, arguing that the transformation needed beyond death cannot simply be something that happens to us without our involvement. Using more typically Protestant language, they speak less of an extension of penitence beyond death and more of an extension of sanctification. The most prominent of these voices is Jerry Walls, teaches at Houston Baptist University. On the handout, you'll see on the back, there's an article on First Thi by, by Jerry Walls that was in First Things, um, which you can read for free online. It's, it's a very short piece, and it's a kind of Protestant argument for something like purgatory. He disagrees on some details, and you can ask about that. It's a very useful piece, an example. It's no trick, and it's, no, it's a, a certain kind of argument. It's no accident that Walls is a Methodist. He's a Wesleyan, where there's a strong sense of holiness, the need to achieve perfection, those kinds of issues. But there is some ecumenical discussion on these kinds of questions. Let me conclude with asking, to go back to the title I originally gave, Purgatory is Good News for Most of Us. Is it really good news? So I've noted Catholic official teaching on purgatory has been rather bare bones. It's been filled in by popular teaching, which often is images of fire, punishment, not very attractive. I think that's true, but let's look at it another way, relatively common in recent Catholic theology. On the handout on the back, there is a fairly long quotation that I'd like to read, because I think it's so useful, and this is official. This is from an encyclical of Pope Benedict XVI, Spe Salvi, Saved by Hope. Um, an encyclical is an official letter from the Pope carrying a significant degree of weight. And he says this, some about purgatory. Some recent theologians are of the opinion, now the, the inside joke here is that the theologian who's been particularly of this opinion was Benedict when he was a theology professor. He's, there's a self-reference here, sort of an inside, inside joke to a degree. Some recent theologians are of the opinion 
that the fire which both burns and saves is Christ himself, the judge and savior. The encounter with him is the decisive act of judgment. Before his gaze, all falsehood melts away. This encounter with him, as it burns us, transforms and frees us, allowing us to become truly ourselves. All that we build during our lives can prove to be mere straw, pure bluster, and it collapses. Yet in the pain of this encounter, when the impurity and sickness of our lives becomes evident to us, there lies salvation. His gaze, that is Jesus's, the touch of his heart, heals us to an undeniably painful transformation as through fire. Quotation back to 1 Corinthians 3. But in a, it is a blessed pain in which the holy power of his love sears through us like a flame, enabling us to become totally ourselves and thus totally of God. In this way, the interrelation between justice and grace also becomes clear. The way our, we live our lives is not immaterial, but our defilement does not stain us forever if we have at least continued to reach out towards Christ, towards truth, and towards love. Indeed, it has already been burned away through Christ's passion. At the moment of judgment, we experience and we absorb the overwhelming power of his love over all the evil in the world and in ourselves. The pain of love becomes our salvation and our joy. Now, if that is what we mean by purgatory, and this is the Pope sort of doing official teaching, then I think not only do we see purgatory as deeply rooted in basic Christian beliefs and hope, but also while even though purgatory may be fearful, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, purgatory is also something to be deeply desired. Purgatory is simply the last stage of dying and rising with Christ, putting off the old person of sin and putting on the new reality of Christ, a process begun decisively in baptism and continued throughout our lives. In that sense, purgatory is the final triumph of grace. And that, I think, is something to look forward to and give thanks for. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch